Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lonigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And today is subject never far from any conversation, especially when the word trade is involved. Of course, I'm talking about China. And our guest recently had the pleasure, accompanied by former Federal Government Minister Andrew Robb, of a lengthy discussion with China's ambassador to Australia, Chi O Tien. Now, the bloke you're about to hear has been a Sinophile for all of his business life from Global Agritrends. Simon Quilty, welcome. Thanks, Kerry. Simon, you're uh, stepping into a room with perhaps the most talked about ambassador in Australia. How long was the uh, schedule for discussion with you uh, and featuring Andrew Robb, of course? Uh, Kerry, it was a two and a half hour meeting um, with the ambassador. We had lunch together, uh, Andrew Robb and myself, and uh, there was also the first Secretary of Agriculture present and also the first Secretary of the Embassy present. Any preconditions, uh, any subject out of bounds, for example? Or? Well, we agreed upon, I sent a list of questions that we would like to ask them, so there was nothing that blindsided them, you might say, Kerry. But I will be honest, it was a very um, positive discussion. I've got to say it was all pre-Taiwan and, and what went on several weeks later. But I came away feeling very positive about potentially where Australia and China's relations could head. So a bit of positivity out of the discussion. Yet you're talking to a bloke representing a regime seen to be punishing Australia for merely having a different point of view. It is. And look, Kerry, in an ideal world, we'd like to separate trade and politics. But you know, reading through the script of that discussion that we sent you, you can see that there is the word respect used on a dozen occasions. And to them, politics and trade are tied at the hip. So whatever we say in terms of our thoughts and views on other matters that China are involved with will undoubtedly have some form of impact upon trade. So that to them, the, the two are tied at the hip. Yes, uh, so I assume eventually you got to agriculture where I certainly would have seen, have, so you would have had so many questions. Where did you start? Well, first of all, you always try to find the common ground, as you know, and you know the things that we've done together. So Andrew Robb, the former trade minister, the architect of the free trade agreement between Australia and China, uh, signed in 2015. So lots of positives have come out of that trade agreement over the years. But the real focus was, and keep in mind, uh, Kerry, that this was the third time that Andrew and I had met and got together to discuss um, the China-Australian relations. We we had titled two previous seminars, webinars that we did called Seeking a Circuit Breaker in Australia-China Trade Relations. And that was over the two previous years. And how this meeting came about was we were going to do the third, you might say, instalment of that. And I said to Andrew, look, instead of having uh, James Lauritsen, the uh, director for the Australian-China Relations Institute, and the uh, Miss Sulin Tan from the South China Morning Post, instead of doing the interview with those, let's invite the ambassador to 
discuss it. Why not go to the source? Absolutely. And that's exactly what we did. Simon, so, you mentioned, mentioned the ambassador. He's got a very, very interesting background, hasn't he? I mean, very experienced postings to India, Philippines, Hungary, Indonesia, and, of, and of the United States, of course, and now Australia. You don't get gigs like that without being very, very highly regarded. That's correct. And, and I think it was his you know, skilled craftsmanship in diplomacy that brought him to Australia, given the difficulty or the fraught nature of our relationship over the last three years. And so, you know, that was discussed right at the onset in our meeting in which we said, you know, he's got a reputation for building strong friendships and achieving outcomes, which he did in the US, the Philippines, Hungary, and his last posting, Indonesia. So he comes here, I think, with um, a real purpose is Ambassador Xia Qian. Yeah. A key question included the clear inference that if uh, Australia openly supported China's application to join the CPTPP, which I understand stands for the Comprehensive and Progressive for Trans-Pacific Partnerships, if you could progress that, that could be a game changer. Is that how you read the read the room when you were there? Yes, it was. Look, it, it, this was a proposal put forward by Andrew Robb. And given, you know, Andrew is now a citizen of Australia. He is no longer the trade minister, we know. But in the eyes of the Chinese, he's truly respected. And they see any former minister as almost an ambassador of that country. So Andrew went in with a very strong reputation. He said, you know, and he's desperately, you know, passionate about Australia's agricultural sector and the relations with China. So, you know, all the hard work that was achieved in 2015 in part had started to unravel in terms of those relationships. And so it was his initiative in which he said, look, here's the olive branch. If we are to support you to get into CPTPP, would you be willing to look at removing um, the trade sanctions that currently exist? Yes, and so. Exchanging olive branches probably is the best way to describe that, Kerry. Yes, he suggested that uh, that, that China restore uh, wine, coal, meatworks licences, barley, iron ore, coal, sugar, timber, lobsters. I don't think I've missed anything there, have I? He suggested that they be restored to the status they once enjoyed if Australia supported this application. That's a, that's a big trade-off, isn't it? It is a big trade-off, and what was clear to me is that there was never going to be one silver bullet to try and get all those um, you know, sanctions removed. And this was made very clear by the ambassador, and, but implied that you know, they would look one by one at each of these sanctions. And so they're not going to give all that away, that leverage overnight. They, you can see that in the future, should there be any ground given, it will be on a you know commodity by commodity basis, but I think they recognise that there is a role to be played here. That they would regard you know that as very very constructive, and in his response to us, he said that if that was to happen, that Australia were to support um, the application of China to CPTPP, that that would create a bigger and higher platform for practical cooperation between the two countries. I think that was his way of saying, yes, you know, this could be a way forward. 
Time for a break from our podcast on China. Back in a moment. Akatak Duo Star from Elanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. Welcome back to On the Grill, and our guest today, special guest, talking about China, is Simon Quilty. the uh, The term "global food inflation" and "food security" were used, and the ambassador appeared very positive about cooperation with Australia. That's those words, "food security." Gee, they're heard a lot in Asia, aren't they? That that is correct. And look, saying that now, you know, in the last month. Beef imports into China, Kerry, became the number one item imported into China, as in surpassed the uh, the quantity of pork being imported into China. And so, from an Australian point of view, the role of China is getting greater and greater. And you know, any trading house, any meat processor will tell you that since China has come into the market. With a vengeance, you know, six seven years ago, it has truly created a competitive playing field in global markets. There's nothing like having four large buyers of beef, lamb, and mutton globally versus three,、yes. and it's absolutely crucial that we maintain access into that market. Yes, I, I think、um, it's important that our listeners to this podcast today understand that. China has only nine percent of the world's arable land, yet 1.4 billion people, and they cannot possibly feed themselves. They need to import food, a lot of it, and regularly. That's correct, Kerry. You know, and look, what's fascinating about beef is that since African swine fever, you know, that we saw that extraordinary rise in the market in 2019 due to the lack of pork. The beef has come into its own carry. So beef today trades within China at around 90 rumenbi per kilo, and has just gone on the up for the last two years. In the meantime, pork has collapsed from 60 rumenbi back to 21, 22 rumenbi. In recent times, it's just lifted slightly, and poultry has stayed at 20 rumenbi for almost a decade. So. Beef now truly exists in its own right, and that the competition from pork and poultry—we would know that in Australia or the U.S. in in China—they don't see those other two commodities as competition. Beef truly exists in its own right. Yes.、Um, so where does the trade rapprochement start?、Um, will we know, or is something happen? Will something happen behind closed doors, or or, or will it be out in the open?、Um, I suspect. I suspect that everyone will be stumped, and then there'll be some positive announcements very suddenly. I think that that, that could be true, Kerry. I'd like to think that we may go to what what I would say common ground. So you know, disease in Southeast Asia, and that was raised at this meeting with the ambassador, and there was a genuine desire to work closely with Australia 
on tackling foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease in Southeast Asia. And there is an organization that we are joint members of called CCAP, which is the Southeast Asia and China Foot and Mouth Disease um, Program. And that has been in existence for 20 years. It's somewhat strapped for cash, but there is never a better time in which to build, I think, that relationship through CCAP in which to revitalize that eradication program. So that was one of the common grounds. The other one is climate change. And they have a genuine desire, I think, in which to try and, I guess, respond to climate change and see a lot of common ground in Aust- between Australia and China when it comes to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So, Kerry, I think to me the answer lies in finding the common ground to work with. Yes, uh, climate change. I think China is the world's biggest emitter and they appear on the surface not to have done very much about it at all. And Australia, meanwhile, is heading for zero emissions by 2050. What's, what's the program in China? How can they say they're obliging the, uh, the protocols of zero emissions when they build new coal-fired power stations every month? Well, so there's you know, drought going on. They've got, you know, they've had the most severe heat wave ever on record just in recent weeks, and it's the worst drought since the 1960s. So we've got parts, particularly the Sichuan province, where there is a lack of water, and hydroelectricity is a really important part of that process. They've reduced electricity by 14%. And, you know, it's a challenging time. So they have had to fire up, you know, you might say the the coal blasts to get, you know, energy back into the grid. So there are practical reasons why. It's not to say, you know, that we can justify everything they're doing, but there's no doubt that their heavy reliance upon hydroelectricity has seen them turn back to coal to try and fill the gaps in terms of energy supply. But, you know, in June this year, Kerry, they came out with their National Climate Adaption Strategy um, in which they have outlined the importance of food security and what they call climate-sensitive sectors. So they've linked the two together and basically are looking for a way forward because they see these extremes in weather impacting their food security. And uh, they're... The think tank that is behind a lot of this within China has put a value of $45 billion um, in terms of the economic losses due to those extreme weather events. So I think in their mind, climate change is critical in trying to avoid having to rely on coal so much. I doubt any decision is made in China without reference to those two words you used again, uh, food security. Uh, We don't have that issue in Australia, but I guess it's at the forefront of just about every thought process in China when when they're creating major policy. That's without doubt. And you've seen, you know, I guess we've gone to record imports of beef, pork and chicken in recent years. I mean, beef imports, I think, are going to get to 2.4 million tonnes. Um, this year, Kerry. So it all points to a much greater reliance on other suppliers globally, 
We know we've got 10 meatworks in Australia that do not have access right now to China. And I think, Kerry, that with some confidence, I'd like to say that we're going to see those meatworks in the near future hopefully regain their licences. Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back to On The Grill, and our guest today, special guest, talking about China, is Simon Quilty. Our trade with China is about 30, close to 40% of, of our world trade, yet China's trade with Australia is about 2%. Do we really matter that much to, to China? I think on a certain number of items, coal is a very good example um, that it truly does matter, Australia's role. But I think they've made it very clear to us um, over the years that if you know our political policies and our trade policies don't align with theirs, then they're not afraid to flex their muscle to make it clear to us that they're unhappy. So I guess to answer your question, yes, we're a small part of the pie in terms of their global needs, but at the same time in certain parts of the market, they require us. And when it comes to food security, I guess they need as many players on board as possible. Will the relationship ever get back to what it used to be? Or, or I think that will be challenging. It will, won't it? Yeah, so there's been a lot of damage on both sides, I suspect. I think it has. And look, we've seen endless interviews in recent weeks um, over differences between Australia and China. And I think it's clear that you know the lessons learned of the last few years is that the louder we cry out about some of their domestic policies, they will come back in one form or another, you know, to remind us that this is a domestic issue only for them. You know, that's a decision as a country, whether we decide to go down that path or not, Kerry. But from a trade point of view, if you isolate that on its own, you know, there will be challenges going forward, continual challenges, if we keep, I guess, second-guessing their domestic decisions and policies. Simon, uh, you've been going to China for a long time. I think you went first in in the early 80s. You know China as well as most people. If you could do something instantly to uh, fix the China-Australia relationship, the imbroglio, what would it be? Something very quickly, overnight, just say, I've got to do this and have it happen. I think, Kerry, that diplomacy comes in many forms. And one of the best things you can do and I, uh, is look at what their current number one concern is, and there's flooding in regions here. They have the most extreme drought and they have extreme flooding in the northern parts of China. If there's any way we can reach out and give assistance as a sign of goodwill, 
if you were to say something to be done overnight, that would be it, is that you've got these extreme weather conditions and to show a sign of goodwill, even though you know we have differences on many other areas, I think goes a long way to, I guess, taking the first step forward in, in terms of improving that relationship. Sounds yeah. a great idea. Now, look, uh, one final question, and you mentioned drought there, and this final question is not about uh, China. It's about the United States. When drought breaks in the United States, what are the ramifications for Australian beef producers? Well, Kerry, this drought in America is one of the worst on record. And one of the key indicators are the female kill, no different to what we look at in Australia. But when we look at the most recent data in the last month or so, the US female kill is at 53% and is at one of the highest levels in, in recent history. And with that is likely to come well, is coming enormous herd liquidation. We know females are being slaughtered 15% above this time last year. But what really resonates to me is that the last time this happened, and it wasn't anywhere near as severe, was in 2010 and 11, where a severe drought saw you know a, an enormous amount of liquidation. And as a result, three, four years later, by 2014, their herd size had dropped dramatically. So the net effect was we saw the herd go well below 90 million. To me, we could see a very similar thing happen again, Kerry, and that the herd size is likely to fall dramatically. And as a result, we're going to see less than 85 million head of animals within the system. And the net effect is going to be an enormous demand imported product. So so much so that I've got figures on fresh 90s. If we were to see history repeat itself, today fresh 90s sit at 270 in America. But by, would you believe, 26, 27, 2026, 27, if history was to repeat itself, it could see a 45% increase in the value of fresh 90s and imported 90s in America. So Kerry, they're the type of ramifications that when you get a herd of less than 85 million within America, it will see an enormous shortage of protein within that market. And great opportunities for Australian producers, I assume. Very much so. Simon Quilty, Sinophile, great pleasure to have you on, uh, have your expertise on the grill for Beef Central. Thank you very much. Thanks, Karen. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time. I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.